today's episode deserves an introduction to the normal introduction. This is because Leon Cooperman is part of a select, highly elite, and often misunderstood group of people that we call billionaires. In today's polarized social and political environment, billionaires make tempting targets. Why not? They're big enough to take care of themselves, right? When you get down to it, the real question is whether people who create value that results in billions of dollars in wealth are doing anything for anyone other than themselves. The answer, of course, is yes. People become extremely wealthy in America by providing products and services that other people want to buy because they make our lives better, longer, healthier, more comfortable, and more fun. They create innovations and efficiencies that raise productivity and increase standards of living. Moreover, the wealth they acquire for themselves represents only a small fraction of the total value they've created, with much of the rest going back out the door in terms of wages, salaries, benefits, taxes, and, in the end, philanthropy. When you stop to consider how much work is required to become wealthy and how much of the benefit of that wealth flows, often unintentionally, not to the billionaires, but to the people they employ and serve directly and indirectly. The anger and envy focused on them seems misplaced. A world without them would, by definition, be poorer, and each of our lives would be shorter, less interesting, and less comfortable. I often say that many people would like to have a billion dollars, but it seems a relative few have the skill, ability, and willingness to do the work and make the sacrifices required to get it. This is probably as it should be. Adam Smith, the father of market economics, believed that great wealth wasn't the true goal of life. Rather, he said we should aspire to tranquility of mind and a way of living that's simple and relatively easy to afford. To pursue, accumulate, and manage wealth is to take on burdens and anxiety. He said we're like a poor young man or woman who sees the great wealth of others and desires it for him or herself. They work and struggle to improve their station, Smith said, acquiring houses and horses and carriages, as well as lesser trinkets that signify their economic status as a means of gaining the esteem of others. They're also encumbered by worry, more afraid of what they might lose rather than thrilled at the prospect of gains. And, after having devoted the best of their lives to gaining wealth, as they approach the end, they're left with regret for having neglected the relationships that provide life's true riches. In short, the gaining and display of wealth is the cognitive trick that drives capitalism forward. Money doesn't and can't buy happiness or tranquility, but we pursue it nonetheless, and as we pursue it, we accidentally make other people better off. Our guest today is a billionaire, but also a man who has, through his devotion to his wife and his family, avoided the billionaire's trap. In his 79th year, Leon Cooperman is looking back on his life, not with regret, but with gratitude. He's one of the very lucky, a man who found his vocation in the financial industry, worked very hard, taking only one day a year away from his job. He employed many, paid them generously, strengthened the efficiency of the American economy, and made a great deal of money while living a quiet and simple life. 
Today, Leon Cooperman's job is to manage the residual wealth acquired in the creation of even more wealth and to think of ways to share it with the world as a way of saying thank you to the people, communities, and the nation that helped him rise from the streets of the Bronx to become a leader of high finance. What you'll hear in this conversation is a meditation on what it means to find and live out vocation, the importance of kindness and mutual respect, and how some of the truest and best satisfactions come from, in the words of Pablo Picasso, finding your gift and then giving it away. Leon Cooperman, thank you for joining us on Hardly Working. Hardly Working. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> That's not me. I work very hard. No, it's uh, it's meant to be a play on on words that when you're really enjoying what you're doing in life, you're not really noticing that you're working. And maybe we can get Absolutely. in. Absolutely. It's been, I, I do a lot of lecturing at colleges and high schools and meet with kids. And I tell them the only way to be successful is to love what you do and do what you love. Yeah, that's you know, and, uh, that's the same. I've been in the business world for about 60 years, and uh, I've enjoyed pretty much every minute of it. That's terrific, and I think that that in itself is an important message for our listeners to hear, uh, that that finding that niche in life is so important um, to sustaining a career and being happy while you do it. So let's get into the questions. Um, on this podcast, we spend a lot of time talking about vocation, uh, in the sense of kind of calling to work, uh, you know, a, a a something internal that drives us forward into our work. And I, um, so I always like to ask our guests, um, you know, you've had a long, extremely successful career. How did that happen? When you look back on it, how how did your how did your life develop such that this became an idea for you? Well, I'm going to give you the explanation I've often used. I said I attribute my success to hard work, luck, and intuition. So the first two, hard work and luck, that's pretty self-explanatory. If anyone doesn't attribute some of their success to luck, they have to be pretty stupid. Intuition requires some explanation. So I'll give you two examples of intuition, which I think were very important in my career path. Number one, in the 60s, if you completed your major and minor in college in three years, you were able to count your first year of medical or dental school towards your fourth year of college and get a separate degree. So in the summer of 1963, I took physical chemistry at the University of Pennsylvania. Chemistry was my major, and that was the last course in the major. And I enrolled in August of 63 in the University of Pennsylvania School of Dentistry. And I was committed to a course in dentistry. After eight days, and don't laugh, but after eight days, I started to wonder if I was pushing myself in a direction I was fully committed. What raised that question in your mind? Well, I felt uh, I had the maturity to understand that if I was going down a path of three or four years of education and with a lot of expense, that I should have a real commitment. I wasn't sure I was committed. Mm, mm. So at that time, I had paid room and board for the year. I paid uh, tuition for the year. I drilled my initials LC into $1,200 worth of equipment. They tell you to drill your initials into your equipment because things have a way of disappearing in the laboratory. 
and I had to go to the dean of the dental school, explain to him I was unsure about my career path, and I wanted to matriculate back into undergraduate school and finish off my fourth year unencumbered by any decision, and then make a decision in the fullness of time. He was quite nasty. I was not sophisticated. He tried to put me in a guilt trip, saying I deprived the 101st applicant of a dental education. I wasn't smart enough to realize after eight days, you can go to somebody in the wait list and accept him. Uh, and the only one who understood the trauma I was going through was Glenn T. Nigren, who was the dean of Hunter College, who had approved my matriculating back in. And he said it was a very heroic decision. Of course, you can come back. At which point, when I came back, I had all electives available, and I took 10 courses in economics in my senior year, got 10 A's, never looked back. I found that what interested me. That's an example of intuition. A second example, and I don't know where you acquire intuition. I guess it was my Brock's upbringing where I had to survive in a hostile environment. Uh, the second example of intuition is when I was getting my MBA from Columbia Business School, um, I was uh, basically an interviewing for a job in 1966. I had 16 job offers, and uh, the best job offer I got was not from Goldman Sachs. I had four job offers for more money. The Goldman offer was for 12,500, and one of the f I was I had a six-month-old child. I had no money in the bank. I had a student loan to repay, and it was one of the few times in my life that I passed a deadline without acting. I got a call from the gentleman that made me the offer. His name was Bob Danforth uh, from Yankton, South Dakota. He said, Lee, we're disappointed we haven't heard from you. What can we say? I said, Bob, let me be honest with you. I got four job offers for more money. I'm dead broke, but I liked everybody I met at Goldman. At that time, Union Carbide had compound interest tables floating around that were very popular. I knew a doubling in five years was 15% compound. And I said, do you think I could make 25000 a year in five years? The offer, if I didn't mention it, was for twelve five. And then he said, if you work hard and keep your nose clean, I think you can do it. I said, okay, I'm coming. And uh, that was a decision based upon liking people, not on money. And uh, in the uh, fifth year, I actually made 180000 And in the ninth year, I was made a general partner of the firm. When I was made a partner of Goldman Sachs in 1976, the firm had a record year to earn $40 million. And then when I retired uh, 15 years later, they were in $1.8 billion, and I was there for the entire ride. So those are two examples of intuition, which worked very well for me. And so I, I, I attribute my success to hard work. I've always been the first to open up the office in the morning, uh, the last to close it. Uh, luck uh, and intuition. Uh, I apologize for phoning. I'm just, it's Walgreens checking on a medication. Anyway... Um, that's the answer to the question. Yeah. I hope that resonates with no, you. No, it really does. I mean, I, I frequently say when I'm talking to groups of young people on vocation, I, I tell them one of the last pieces of, of advice I give them is to pay attention to their gut. You know, not every decision is going you're going to be able to say you've thought through and you've got a reason. Sometimes you don't have a reason except that, in your case, dentistry just I'll tell wasn't you the other thing work. is just to tell the kid you speak to. And when I, when I speak to kids, I emphasize this consistently. The first test to the gentleman is his respect for those who could be of no possible value to him. Or alternatively, no matter how educated, talented, rich, or cool you believe you are, how you treat people ultimately tells all. So, so be nice to people, treat people below you in the same fashion you treat people above you. Who taught you that? Excuse me? Who taught you that kind of... Um... 
you just assume respect you, you for other people. It, you know, you, know uh, you assimilate from people around you. I guess I hung around with people that had those values and virtues. Was it your Plus mom? Plus, I have common I mean, sense. Dad, my dad was a bigger influence to me than my mom, but both had an influence. But I would say that um, you also have your own value system. You figure out what's right. I support an organization financially. I have a, a buttons in front of me right now. It's called Kindness Matters, 365 days. I give them money, and they treat young children the importance of being kind. And I tell you, I have a real live example. One of the guys that I have the greatest respect for that I've met in 60 years in this industry was Ken Langone. And one evening, Ken was having dinner with a money manager and the salesman that knew the money manager and me. And basically, uh, the purpose of the dinner was Langone was going to lay into the lap of this money manager a new client. And when Ken saw how rude the guy was to the waiter who waited on us, he never brought up the subject. So, you know, it's another example of somebody who has similar values. Treat people below you no differently than treat people above you. Very important. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Uh, let me let me shift just a little bit here to talk to you about. Um, I find it really interesting. So you, you decided against dentistry and you switched into economics and you found this like passion for it. You know, you were really interested in how the markets worked, how money worked, how the economy mm-hmm. worked. Um, when you when you went into investment banking. What were you well, I actually went into the research department, Goldman. I didn't go into investment banking. Okay, you went into the research department. So what, what were you thinking about in terms of goals for yourself? Well, my I didn't have any lofty goals. My initial goal was to put some bread on the table and feed my family. I started out with a young wife. I'm now married 57 years, the same woman. I had a six-month-old child who's now 55 years old. I had to put bread on the table. So and I was lucky, you know. Pablo Picasso said, the meaning of life is to find your gift. The purpose of life is to give it away. I was very lucky. I found my gift. I was able to extract profits from the market. And now, as my sunset years, I'm focused on giving it away. So you, you started out, I got to care for my family. This was the primary goal, the motivation. Yeah, and, and responsibility as the leading, as the head uh, of household. And then, and then you, as your wealth began to grow, I remember reading this in the Washington Post article, it was like the goals had to change, right? Uh, when my income started to exceed my cost of living, uh, basically, I figured out there were four things you could do with money. The first thing you could do with money is you could pleasure yourself by buying boats, planes, homes, cars, collect art, collect sports teams. My wife and I both have a very similar view. She had a career. She taught learning disabled neurologically impaired children, so she was very busy in her career. I was very busy in my career at Goldman, and both of us have a view that material possessions brings with it aggravation as well as the pleasure. So we're less is more. So we could not use our excess savings because we didn't have a desire to spend. Uh, Not that we were cheap, but we just didn't covet anything. I drive a Hyundai. I don't collect art. I'm not a big sports enthusiast, so I don't have teams. Nothing wrong with collecting art or having sports teams, but it didn't turn me on. Second thing you do with money is give it to your children. But if you have a lot of money, giving your kids all your money is a mistake because you should deprive them of self-achievement. Third thing you do with money is give it to the government. But only a schnook gives the money to the government. You don't have to give. You pay your taxes as a citizen. You don't volunteer to pay them more. And the fourth thing you do with money is you recycle back in society and try to make the world a better place. 
And that's what I've decided to do with my money. And next to seeing my children and grandchildren grow old and with purpose and in good health, helping others less fortunate is uh, my thing. It's terrific. So let me ask you this. I hear a lot of people say, I'd like to have a billion dollars. I hear a lot of people say things like that. Uh, I'd like to have that. Right. Less, I can less, understand that. Yeah, less common is the idea that I'd like to earn a billion dollars because earning a billion dollars takes a lot of effort, right? It takes a lot of effort. It takes a lot of luck. You know, you got to be in the right industry. You know, if I went to work for the tire, rubber, steel industry, the automobile industry, I couldn't have made it. I picked an industry that had an affinity for that was very lucrative, and uh, I made it, you know. I was once told by a very cute guy, he says, I'm the worst-dressed billionaire he ever knows. My response to him was multi. <laughs> multi. That's, you know? Yeah. Uh, yeah. It is what it is. You know, I don't count it. Uh, I don't covet it. Uh, I don't live that way. You know, uh, my trappings, I, I have uh, two Hyundais. You know, I have. I don't collect art. I don't collect teams. Uh, I'm not a, uh, a clothes horse. I've always been overweight most of my life, unfortunately. You know, so, um, you know, I buy whatever I want. You know, it's a good feeling to be in a position, and I, I feel sorry for people that aren't, by the way. I'm in a position where I can afford anything I want. They just I don't want anything. Yeah, and I, I, you know, talking about this amount of money, you literally, I mean, you'd, you'd have to, how could you spend it? You know, there there aren't that many things that anybody needs or wants. I would say if you were an art collector, you could spend it. Sure, you could sure. spend it easily. You know, you could buy a canvas for a hundred million dollars. Yep, yep. But even at a hundred million dollars, and the rate of accumulation that you've got in your portfolio, it would be it's well, it's I, hard I don't have to get rid of that accumulation. Money. I'm retired, so I'm giving away my savings. Um, so you're not working right now. You're you're not well, you're not managing the funds. Is, I be, my career is as follows. I worked 18 months at Xerox Corporation up in Rochester after I graduated undergraduate school. I decided to go back to school full-time to get an MBA. I went to Columbia Business School. I graduated from my M- with my MBA, and I went to work at Goldman the next day, and I spent 25 happy years there. I retired from Goldman in 91. I ran Omega Hedge Fund until 2018. And at the end of 2018, I gave everybody back their money, and I retired to become a family office. So right now I, I work very hard, but I work at – I don't have clients. I consider the absence of clients ah. an indication I'm retired. I just manage my own money. I make my own money. I lose my own money. And at age 79, which I'll be on Monday, uh, not having the pressure from managing client money is good for me. I tell everybody I'm like Hyman Roth if you saw Godfather <laughs> 2. Right before they plugged him at the I airport, hope you're not like Hyman uh, Roth. Well, I'm in the following context. Right before they shot him, yeah. he said, I'm a retired executive living in a pension. So I tell everybody I'm a retired money manager living in investment income. The bad news is I have no active income. The good news is I have no pressure. So I swapped income for pressure. In age 79, it was a worthwhile swap with my decision. That's a good trade. I get a lot of enjoyment out of helping out people less uh, successful than myself. The thing that I'm most proud of that I have my whole family involved in, it was my idea, I created something called Cooperman College Scholars. So if you live in Estes County, New Jersey, you are surely initiative and enroll in a free three-week pre-college program designed by Franklin and Marshall, which explains to these kids what to expect in college. 
and you're academically qualified. And I have a board of 15 people that interview these kids. I believe in equal opportunity, not in equal outcomes. Some people shouldn't go to college. They're better off being plumbers or electricians or whatever, the carpenters. And uh, you have a financial need that I'm met by government. I'll give you $10,000 a year for up to six years, and I'll help guide you through college. And uh, I gave them $25 million five years ago to send 500 kids to college. And I told them I knew the statistics, and the statistics were not impressive. 35% of Newark High School kids went to college. Only 5% graduated. Right. So I've worked too hard for this money for a 5% graduation rate. Well, our first cohort graduated, 73% graduation rate. I gave them a second $25 million to send 1,000 kids to college. I'll probably give them a bequest in my will when I, when I go on to Greener Passages. And so uh, I get a lot of pleasure out of that. You're changing the lives of these kids. The average lifetime earnings of a college graduate is well over a million dollars more than a non-college graduate, plus you're giving them skills to be more competitive in the world that we're in. That's why I get a great enjoyment out of that. I'm also a member of an organization called Horatio Alger, which is an association of successful men and women that grew up with very minor circumstances that happen to be generous. And I was elected to that association, and we basically are like Robin Hood. You know, we get money from fat cats like me, and give it to kids to help educate them, but they have to have a twist. They have to have a, you know, a, a hardship in their life growing up. So we've sent 35,000 kids to college and raised $240 million from people like me. And uh, this past week, uh, I was at our annual meeting in Washington, D.C., and I sat with one of the college scholars, and I quizzed her what was her hardship. Well, her father was serving time in jail for mm. killing her mother in oh. a drug-related murder, and she was raised by her grandmother. When I think of the influence my parents had on me growing up, that's a major, major hardship. So, you know, I like helping people like that that deserve a break. And she got a full ride at Duke, a very bright kid. So what's your when, – when you were still managing other people's money um, – what was your team like that you worked with that you employed directly? Well, they were highly motivated, uh, highly compensated, accomplished people. How many of them did you employ? I, I had a staff of about 50 people, 10 of which were analysts. And I, and I use as my mantra, I quoted um, Andrew Carnegie, who said he wanted to have as his epitaph, here lies a man or I would say man or woman, wise enough to bring into a service, men or women wiser than he. So I would hire smart people and share the loot in the business with them equitably. So everybody that uh, generated a P&L got paid in the P&L. It was a meritocracy. They got 5% of the profits they generated. And so I had people making as much as $10, $12 million in a year, which in the world I grew up was obscene, but they deserved it because that's the way the reward system worked. Right, and and that... You know, you were talking about all the contributions that you're making now as you're trying to give your money away. But another aspect of what billionaires provide to society are what you just described in terms of the people that you employed and their families. Yeah. Let me let me just say this. It's become a pet peeve of mine. I'll give you the background. About uh, four years ago, I think it was, I gave a speech at a conference. Nothing whatsoever to do with politics. At the time I gave the speech, it was strictly on the stock market outlook. 
the moderator asked me, what would the market do if Elizabeth Warren, who was running strongly in the polls, became president? I said, probably drop 20%, maybe more. The next day, not knowing anything about me, she tweets, Leon, I'm only looking for 2%. That's the wealth tax. Give others a shot at the American dream. So I think long and hard, and I decided to take a leaf out of Michelle Obama's book, who said, when they go low, we go high. So I wrote her a very, very good letter. The letter was so good that Larry Summers, who I respect greatly as a leading economist, called me up and said, if you submitted that paper in the class I gave at Harvard, he was formerly president of Harvard, so I'd give you an A+. She did nothing to respond to anything in the paper. It was a five-page letter to her, very respectful, very conciliatory, saying we had to work together, and labeled me an insider trader, which libeled me because I won the case. And she said, I own stock in Navian, which I did, which tripled since I bought it. And she had a negative view of Navian student loan companies. And I tried to explain to her, 17 countries adopted a wealth tax, 14 dropped it. At least a very artificial action. It makes no sense. What's your problem with billionaires? How do you get to be a billionaire? Forget the Wall Street guys. You know, Bill Gates, Jeff Bezos, you know, uh, Bernie Marcus became billionaires as they developed the product or service the world needed, and they got rewarded for it. I'm intimately familiar with uh, Bernie Marcus' story because he's a neighbor of mine here in Florida, basically. Bernie was fired by Sandy Siegeloff. He calls up Ken Langone, literally in tears, somewhat emotional. I have three children, I have a big mortgage, I have no job, I'm screwed. And Langone says to him, what the hell are you getting so panicked about? I'll raise your money, you'll open up your super superstore. Ken gets 50, 40, fam, 40 families to put up $50,000 each, $2 million. Today, the market cap of Home Depot probably is over $300 billion. They have 3,000 employees that are worth over a million dollars from the stock they own in the company. And Bernie and Ken have given billions away to charity. If you could explain to me what's wrong with that picture, I'd like to know. Okay? I'm a small microcosm. I don't talk about myself because my, I'm a philanthropist with a small P. Bernie, uh, Langone, uh, Gates, you know, uh, Larry Ellison, these are philanthropists with big P, Jeff Pezos. You know, they've changed the world for the better. Why should they be criticized? It's, stu- it's stupid. Well, I, I, of course, I agree with you about that. I mean, I, I, and the reason I asked about your team uh, and, and sort of how you compensated them is that what you described there and with, you know, these other billionaires is that, and so you know, you, every, everybody get paid a piece of the action. You generated profits, you get paid. No profits, no pay. If you generated no profits for a long enough period of time, you had no job. So Jeff, somebody like Jeff Bezos, just very wealthy guy, and but he got what he got wealthy. One of the effects of him getting wealthy was providing employment for hundreds of thousands of people, and by extension. You know those people. You know that the, that spending ripples out through the economy. So, I, I'm with you. I mean, I just don't see. You know what? What's the downside of billionaires? And I'd like to hear you talk more about the the value that you've created as, uh, and not not just the money you've, you've accumulated, but the value you've you've created within the American economy. How how does what you did with your life benefited? the entire society, do you think? Well, I now have a hospital named after me. It's called Cooperman Barnabas. It used to be called St. Barnabas. So they dropped the saint for a Jew. I gave him $150 million. 
and they serve 400,000 people in the community in Essex County, New Jersey. Okay, so you can say that I've helped 400,000 people to some degree. Right. Now, and so uh, I'm, not ta- I'm not talking exactly about your philanthropy, about your giving money away, but the, the function that, well, you're, that your the company that plays in the economy, how, do, how, do, how does that aid the development of opportunity and income in America? Well, you make people more competitive in society. You lead a healthier, happier life. You've got to believe that that's helpful to people. Right. I mean, somebody who couldn't afford to go to college and you're providing – I don't take any credit. I have a, a gal that runs a program, a black lady by the name of Twinkle Morgan, who's terrific. She has five people working with her, meet with the kids every day after school to keep them focused. And I think that to the extent that these kids get a college degree they otherwise wouldn't have, you're making them for a better life. They have more self-respect. You know, and they're more accomplished. In my immediate family, mm-hmm. you know, uh, I've given them the right values. My son is, I have two sons, who are both uh, very generous. I have three grandkids. The oldest one is a, a star in the world of philanthropy. You know, when she graduated high school, I gave her a philanthropic fund, uh, a donor-advised fund at a charity. And her first gift, she gave $1,000 to the Indians to fight the pipeline. A father and her grandfather were in favor of the pipeline. But, you know, you can't give people money to give away and tell them what to, where to give it. She's extremely liberal and a very good heart. Um, so I think it's yeah. the values I've instilled in my children and mm-hmm. my grandchildren, I guess. That's a, uh, yeah, that's a major contribution to the future. Um, you know, you're sharing this vision of how to help others. Uh, let me ask you um, about... You you remarked on this in the Washington Post article, and I want to just check and see if this is still true, um, because I think it brings up an interesting contrast with what we're reading about kind of the Russian oligarchs, um, you know, the, the people who have sort of stripped money out of their societies and um, bought yachts and paintings and um, mansions, it, not really because they even wanted them, but just as a way to hide their money. Um, what do you make of that? What do you make of that phenomenon? You know, uh, I don't know. It, I don't. I don't relate to it. I'm not an oligarch. I don't know any oligarch. Uh, I grew up poor in the South Bronx, and my father came to America at the age of 13 in 1920 as a plumber's apprentice, and he did not. He uh, died carrying a sink up a four-story tenement, doing somebody a favor when he was in retirement. He had a heart attack and he died carrying your stink up a four-story tenement. So, you know, I've never learned to live rich. I don't live rich, and I don't live deprived, you know. Right. I am fortunate. I'm able to afford everything I want, but I don't want anything. Okay? Uh, that's it. I'm not, I'm not bragging. I'm not complaining. And, it's a fact. And you, you've, you know, um, you've said that you – Yes, talk about your brother, please. My brother recently passed away. He was my biggest cheerleader. He had a girlfriend that was a designer lady. And she wanted to know, always asked my brother, why did I drive a Mercedes or a Bentley? You know, and I think they said in the article, I have a friend here in my club who has two Bentleys, and I buy and sell him every day of the week in terms of my net worth versus his. And basically, uh, I give away 100 Bentleys a year. I don't get turned on by a Bentley. I don't get turned on by a Mercedes. I don't get turned on by, uh, you know, expensive art. Not that I'm cheap. It just doesn't do anything for me. I have simple taste. I'm married 57 years to the same woman, you know, and uh, we have a similar philosophy. That's terrific. 
So yeah, you, you said about it. it's just a fact. You, it's yeah, a fact. well, it's it's a wonderful fact, and it's doubly wonderful that it's just a statement of of fact. Well, and not what I would a, say is I like to say it's made in America, and they don't get it. You know, I voted for Biden because I thought Trump was a bad human being, but his economic ideas were not that bad. But uh, I don't want to get into politics too much. <laughs> well, I, yeah, that I I agree with you. I mean. It, Trump's economic policy was pretty much standard Republican views. Um, it was yeah. the fact that he was Actually, just such Democrat a terrible I human being. Now, I, had, I, I had lunch with uh, Joe Manchin. I liked him. Mm. I like a good centrist. In 2016, I didn't vote for Clinton or Trump. I wrote a Mitt Romney. Mm. Wasted my vote. He would have been a good president, in my opinion. Yeah. In 2020, I voted basically for Joe Biden, knowing his defects, because I didn't think giving... Trump, a second term, would be holding to nobody and is a would-be dictator who's too dangerous. And we have a democracy. You have 300 members of the House of Representatives. You have 100 U.S. senators. If they want to put the country down a path that I find unacceptable, I'd rather take a chance with 400 voting members than one would-be dictator. That was my philosophy. But that's, uh, that's I'm really disappointed in Biden, but I'm not yeah. shocked. Right. Where, you, know, you know, I said on TV a week ago, when, when Biden says the rich don't pay taxes, he's A, he says that the effective tax rate of the rich is less than their secretary. What he's doing is taking unrealized capital gains and adding that to income. And I say publicly, the last time I checked, we had an income tax, not a wealth tax. And they don't tell the truth. There's no basis to tax wealth. It'll lead to very unnatural acts. And uh, I think it's not only un- illegal, but probably unconstitutional. That may be tested one day. I hope not. Why don't they get rid of 1031, the ability of real estate people to roll capital gains, tax liability forward indefinitely? Why don't they get rid of carried interest for hedge funds and private equity? I benefit from that. They shouldn't have that. It should be taxed as ordinary income. Okay, raise the marginal tax rate. We don't need new forms of taxation. Ever since I was paying taxes, I kept on reading how the government was committed to simplifying the tax structure. If they had a wealth tax, it would be so complicated it would be impossible to deal with. So we're just about out of time, and I wanted to ask one more question of you. You've, you've, sure. you've said that you want, you know, you're not giving all your money to your kids. You are, and you're trying to give away 90% of your wealth. This is my game plan. I want to give away 50% of my money during my lifetime. And the other 50% I'm putting into a foundation where my children and their wives and grandchildren will meet every year to decide what they want to support. And I went as far as saying it would be nice if 50% of what you gave would be given to organizations your mother and I support in our lifetime. The other 50% could be directed by each child, each of my mm, two sons mm, mm. and their families. And I provided for if operating as one foundation was cumbersome, which is my code for not getting along, you could subdivide into two foundations with the same rules. So how hard is it to give away that much money? It's hard to give it away thoughtfully. Um, I don't have a big staff. My foundation board is just basically my two sons, my three, my two of my three grandkids. You have to be 21 to get on the foundation board. I have one grandchild, 13, my two daughter-in-laws, my wife and I, and they defer to me. And, uh, uh, you know, I have no expenses of running the foundation. I don't draw any compensation at all. It's not a tax dodge. And, uh, you know, uh, 
I'm finding it easy because there's, there's no endless number of organizations. It's an endless number of organizations are looking for charitable support. You just got to find out what resonates with you. You know, I, I don't respond to individuals because I don't have the ability to vet, uh, you know, truthful requests. And do, I, do I want their responsibility? So I give to organizations that help people. Well, Leon Cooperman, thank you so much for your time. My and, pleasure. And, thank and, you for your Yes, and all the, all the best uh, on your birthday you. and in your endeavors. Thank you very much. I appreciate that. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Hardly Working. I'm your host, Brent Orell, and I hope you tune in next time to learn more about the state of workforce development in America. Be sure to like and subscribe to our podcast. Let us know at vocation at AEI.org if there are any topics you'd like us to cover. As always, we hope you find the job that fits so well, it feels like you're hardly working.